afternoon and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to live from your true self through all of life's twists and turns. And you'll be challenged to lean into the mysteries of life to find your own deepest wisdom. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. On another show in the past called Mistaken Christianity, we discussed an overall summary some of, the, of some of the mistakes made by even well-intended Christians because of the mistranslations passed down to us. Today, we're going to begin a process of getting more specific about some of these mistranslations. What has happened is that fundamentalism, or what many today are calling evangelical Christianity, is based in these mistakes in translation. If we're going to consider sacred text as a viable source of wisdom and guidance, we need to be careful about how we're translating it. So you want to stay here for this. This is going to be an interesting show. We're going to talk in detail about what some of the, these mistranslations are. And we're going to start at the very beginning. But first, I need to let you know that this, some of the sources that I use for these translations, for the root language, I, I try to go to the root language. And, and, and let me explain that I'm, I am a Bible scholar. I do have a Ph.D. in, in holistic theology. And, a, uh, um, uh, and I do care a great deal about uh, the study of the Bible. But I am also a nobody. I didn't go to a, a Christian seminary. I didn't uh, study under a, uh, a pastor or, or Christian teachers. I studied interfaith uh, studies. So I, I'm very familiar with uh, several of the sacred texts from around the world. I'm also familiar with Emily Dickinson's poem, I Am Nobody and I Am Nobody. But you are nobody, we're all nobodies, and we all have the right to get to the root language of the Bible. We don't have to just accept carte blanche, the translations that are out there. We can do our own study, and that's what I would encourage each of you to do. If you don't believe what I'm saying today, do your own study. And some of the things that you can use for your resources are the same resources I used. Charles Fillmore wrote a book many years ago called A Metaphysical Bible Dictionary. Uh, It details the symbolism, metaphysical symbolism of the various words and names in the Bible. And it's very helpful in that regard. Crosswalk.com is a Christian source online that uh, translates the, the words that are used in the text, and you can get to the root of the root of the root of the root uh, by going, you know, looking at each little, uh, uh, each time you hit one word, there'll be another word to, that, that is rooted in that word, and then you can look at that word and look at the root of that word and keep going until you get to the bottom line. And that's what I did. I spent a lot of time doing that. Uh, to study various texts in the Bible, particularly the book of Genesis, some of the New Testament books, and the book of Revelations. And uh, so crosswalk.com is one. Netbible.org is another uh, that I use to, to, for sentence structure to try to see what the Hebrew or the Greek language is actually saying in the sentence structure of, of texts. So I've done a lot of studies about this, and I, I, I wanna, uh, I'm going to pass that down to you uh, through through a series here that we're about to launch on this show, uh, because if we're going to have an authentic connection to the divine, we want to have an authentic understanding of the sacred texts. Um, so, with that said, let's launch into a little bit. We're going to talk about the very first beginnings, because that's where it all starts. 
fundamentalism says that there is such a thing as original sin, and that is the the that is the like the foundation pre- foundational premise of everything else that comes after that, with regard to Christianity, the the fundamentalist Christian view of things, and so. I'm going to use the word fundamentalism rather than evangelicalism because I think there are evangelical Christians out there who don't necessarily aren't necessarily fundamentalist or real literalist in their interpretations of the Bible or in their uh, approach to life. So I'm going to use the term fundamentalism as we talk about that. So we're going to start with the book of Genesis where the very first beginning of how this whole idea of original sin came about. And the first person we have to study is the nature of God. The word for God uh, that, that has been translated as God in the book of Genesis or, or the Bereshit of the, of the Jewish Tanakh is Elohim. And it has many meanings. And here's some of the meanings it has. It's rulers, judges, divine ones, angels, gods, God, goddess, godlike one, works or special possessions of God, the true God and just God. The word is rooted in Elohah, which means God or false God. And that word, Elohah, is further rooted in El, which also has several meanings, including God, God-like one, mighty one, mighty men, men of rank, mighty heroes, angels, God, false God, God, the one true God, Jehovah, mighty things in nature, strength and power. And El is further rooted in Ayil, which means ram, like the, the, uh, the animal, the ram, pillar, doorposts, jams, pilaster, strong man, leader, chief, mighty tree, or terebinth. And finally, Ayil is rooted in Ul, which means prominence, body, belly, nobles, or wealthy men. So that's the root of the root of the root of the root of the word Elohim that's, that's been translated as God. But as you can see, from the variant meanings of this word and its origins, it includes both divine and man, both the false God and the true God, both mighty things in nature and the doorposts made from those things, both the body of a human and angels. Further, the word Elohim is plural rather than singular. So that's the word that's been translated into English as God. And what we have interpreted that to mean is a male figure, anthropomorphic in nature, and who, who, who acts and thinks like a human being. And, we, and that's been our God. And uh, so, you know, what, what I think of when I think of this word Elohim is much, of, much more well-rounded than our typical westernized version of God. Is, it's universal. It includes man and, it, and angels. It includes things made and things unmade. It, it, it includes... Uh, a sort of universal everything. And I think of that as oneness. Now, you might not think of that as oneness, and you are free to interpret that any way you choose. But as you do so, I would encourage you to look at the root language if you're going to consider it from the biblical perspective. Um, So that's Elohim. Then we've got uh, the Garden of Eden. The word used for garden in that text is gan, an enclosure or a garden. And it's rooted in the primitive word ganan, which means to defend, cover, or surround. So this was an enclosed space, which was defended, covered, and surrounded. That implies a kind of safety, where things are taken care of within that enclosed space. 
and it's like a fort. It's like a, a little a fort where, you know, there's walls around it and, and, and it's taken care of and whatever's inside is defended. So there's a kind of safety that's included there in the word for garden. Eden, which, is, uh, which means, it, it means pleasure and is synonymous with another word of the same spelling, which means luxury, dainty, delight, or finery. The second Eden uh, originates in the word Adan, which means to luxuriate or delight oneself. So within this enclosed and defended space, there was a lot of delight, there was luxury, there was delight, there was pleasure. Um, And uh, so it's a place where we, a place of safety, where we're called upon to luxuriate and delight ourselves in its pleasures. That sounds really cool, right? Um, It sounds almost like our version of heaven. So let's talk a little more. Charles Fillmore, as I've told you before, was one of my resources. The author of the book, uh, uh, The Metaphysical Bible Dictionary, helps us figure out what it is that's enclosed and what encloses it. For he says, the Garden of Eden is actually one compound word, Gan Hadan. And the w- further informs us that the Hebrew Gan Hadan, commonly rendered Garden of Eden, is a compound of surpassing greatness. The word gan means any organized sphere of activity, a garden, a body, a world, a universe. The word hadan, Eden, means a time, a season, an age, an eternity, as well as beauty, pleasure, and ornament are a witness. So he went into to the root, root of the root there. And he adds that from a medical per, metaphysical perspective, it is a pleasant, harmonious, productive state of consciousness in which are all possibilities for growth. The garden symbolizes the spiritual body in which man dwells when he brings forth his thoughts after the original divine ideas. This garden is the substance of God or a state of perfect relations of ideas to being. The Garden of Eden, then, is divine consciousness. So instead of thinking of the Garden of Eden as a place, what we're getting from both the root language and, and Charles Fillmore's understanding, the metaphysical understanding of it, is that it's that it's enclosed and defended consciousness of ourselves as divine beings. In other words, we are the divine beings of our own creation. We are also Elohim. There is a spirit of the divine in Elohim, and we are part of that. Uh, we are constituent to it. This consciousness is the sphere of our activity as Elohim, and it means to last as beauty, pleasantness, delight, and to allow us to witness it for a season, an age, and eternity. It can be a season, an age, and an eternity if everything is always happening in the now. So what we, what we get from this then is, uh, is that there's this state of uh, consciousness that was the original state of consciousness for human beings. And in, in it, we understood ourselves as divine beings. We understood ourselves as constituent to Elohim. And something obviously has happened then later to interrupt that state of consciousness. Uh, and we're going to say more about that as we go. But for now, Fillmore goes on to explain it this way. Having developed a consciousness apart from his divine nature, man must till the ground from whence he was taken. That is, he must come into realization of God as the source of his being and must express ideas in harmony with divine minds. So we're going to talk some more about that as we go. But basically what he's saying there is, once upon a time, we had a consciousness of ourselves as divine beings. That was interrupted by our eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And now we have another consciousness that's apart from our divine nature. And because it is, 
we're not able to access the consciousness that would allow us to be living still in that delight, in that supply, in that safety that we had previous to that. So, and we'll talk some more about that as we go, but I want to sort of just put that hint out there that that's where we're going. What begins to unfold here is that the Garden of Eden is enclosed within the mind of humanity. It is his soul, his truest essence, his awareness of himself as a divine being, and all genuine activity originates from there. So let's, let's keep going to see if that holds true. The word used for the tree in both cases, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and the tree of life, is etz. So we know that there was this Garden of Eden, and in the Garden of Eden, there were planted two trees. And we'll talk about when those trees were planted in a little bit as well. But let's look at what the, what the tree actually is. The word is etz, which simply means wood, tree, timber, stock, plank. So it's all kind of just that the, the, uh, the, the understanding of a tree. It's rooted in atzah, which means to shut. Therefore, there's some kind of shutting that takes place when one eats of the fruit of either of these two trees. Now, Fillmore goes on to tell us that trees represent nerves. And if you look at a tree, you can see that. Uh, it's, it's a real interesting analogy that he's used here. They represent nerves, and nerves are expressions of thoughts of unity. They connect thought centers. The tree signifies the connecting link between earth and heaven, between body and mind, the formless and the formed. So the tree is a thought that allows us to think in, of ourselves in divine ways. Uh, they're, they're planted in the state of consciousness called Eden, and they are thoughts that connect thought centers. They signify our connection to the wholeness of self, the integration of all aspects of being, the congruence of body and mind, formlessness and form. So that's great when that's working, when, that, when we, we can really connect to that consciousness, we're, we're there. We're, we're in that consciousness which he called Eden. We're in the consciousness of ourselves as divine being. But further depth is needed because in order to get to the meaning of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, it seems to threaten the safety of this connection or consciousness of ourselves as divine beings. So let's look at the word knowledge. The word knowledge is dot, which means knowledge, perception, skill, discernment, understanding, or wisdom. However, it is rooted in yada, which carries many meanings, including to know, learn to know, to learn by experience, very important term, to learn by experience, um, to perceive and see, to find out and discern, to discriminate, distinguish, recognize, admit, acknowledge, confess, consider, to be skillful, to be wise, to be made known, to be or become known, to be revealed, to make oneself known, to be perceived, to be instructed, to cause to know, to be known, or to reveal oneself. Now, that's a lot of words. And so we, we can't just say, oh, one of those words works and all the rest of them don't. And that's what so many of our translations have done. They've just picked out one of the words and said, oh, this must be it. And that's what they did with the word dot. They picked the word knowledge instead of perception or skill or discernment or understanding or wisdom. What I think we need to do is put all these words together into one understanding of, you know, how that works. But before we can put them together, we have to understand something about the Bible, um, the history of the translation of the Bible itself, as we said in the previous show, includes translations of what is now considered by Christians to be the Old Testament, from the ancient Hebrew to Aramaic to Greek to Latin, 
when the New Testament began to be written and Christianity began to spread, both the Old and the New Testaments were translated into Coptic, Ethiopian, Gothic, and Latin, with the Latin Vulgate becoming the more standard for approximately a thousand years. Around uh, the 6th century AD, Hebrew scholars tried to retrieve the ancient Hebrew scriptures, restoring them to Hebrew, which over the centuries became the Masoretic text. It was the Latin Vulgate, however, that was used for translations into English. From there, it was translated back into Greek and Latin, and Martin Luther translated it from the ancient Greek and Hebrew into German. After that, there were several other translations into English offered by various spiritual leaders culminating in the King James Version. Bruce Metzger, author of The Bible in Translation, Ancient and English Version, tells us that the most famous translation of the Bible, the King James Version, was translated from the Bishop's Bible and a few other acceptable translations of translations. So the things that have been passed down to English from the Vulgate have been mostly translations of translations. Rarely have there been translations of the actual root language. And so that's why we need to go back to the root language. So there's, there's been several different translations of the King James Version into modern English. Some is translations of translations and others is translations of what is thought to be the original language. Given the numerous translations into various languages, one can never quite be sure of the certain of the original meanings. It becomes apparent then that we must return to the root language wherever possible if we're ever to fully understand what the sacred texts are saying. So that's what I've done. I've tried to go back to the root language as much as possible as much, and look at that understanding. So when we look at the root language that's been translated to mean knowledge in this text, what we find is that it can be translated in several ways. The translators have chosen to use the word knowledge. It could have been the tree of wisdom of good and evil, or the tree of discernment of good and evil, or the tree of self-revelation regarding good and evil, etc., etc., etc. For the purposes of this discussion, however, the terms to make oneself known and to reveal oneself are not only compelling, but reveal a subtext inherent in other meanings for how can we truly know anything without coming to know ourselves. So therefore, these terms will be used because they seem to combine everything into one understanding, to make oneself known or to reveal oneself. So these, these trees are actually thoughts that help us to come to know ourselves. There's a journey that we take. We shut something when we eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We shut something and something happens that's going to help us reveal ourselves to ourselves. It's probably going to be some kind of process or journey. And we'll have to come to understand that and, and more. But it has to do with the terms good and evil. And what do those terms mean? We've, we've translated, tra uh, traditionally translated those terms to mean moral good and moral evil. But we're about to find out something very different in the root language. We're going to be back to talk about that right after this break. Stay tuned for more. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective... 
It changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Are you looking for a happier, healthier, and more fulfilled life? Do you want your business to thrive? Do you want to enjoy better relationships and find your purpose? Tune in every week to Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung Life Transformation with Dr. and Master Shaw with host Diana Gold Holland, who will share the wisdom of Master Shaw. You'll hear from inspiring teachers and listen to testimonials about life transformation. Stepping Into the Tenda Dao Chung can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. in the West and 6 p.m. in the East on Voice America Empowerment. Life can be confusing at times. There can be uncertainty, disappointment, and an inability to clearly see where you're headed. But it doesn't have to be this way at all if you understand how to take the next step in your life. Tune in to Living the Miracle with your hosts, Michael and Raphael Tamora. We'll help you to find the deeper meaning that awaits you in your life, have certainty in yourself, and learn to be clairvoyant. Listen Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment. Live up to your fullest potential. This is the Voice America Empowerment Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll free. 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at AndreaMatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk a little bit about those words, those root language words for good and evil in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk about what's coming up this Sunday on Super Soul Sunday, September the 29th at 11 a.m. and 12 p.m., We've got two shows coming up, Super Soul Sunday, this week, and I'm really excited about both of them. One of them is uh, Oprah sitting down with Chanel Miller, formerly known to the world as Emily Doe, who was sexually assaulted at the, on the Stanford University campus. In her memoir, Know My Name, Chanel shares the aftermath of the assault and trial that followed. So that one is at 11 a.m. Eastern and Pacific on Sunday, September the 29th. And then following that, right after that at 12 noon, Oprah sits down with Bob Iger, chairman and CEO of the Walt Disney Company. In his book, The Ride of a Lifetime, Iger shares values and lessons he's learned from his legendary 40-plus year career in the entertainment business. So two really good shows coming up. Looking forward to that. I won't miss it. I hope you won't either. So, okay, let's talk a little bit more now about uh, this whole thing of good and evil. But before we go there, we should be reminded that uh, we can't really know for sure what uh, what the Bible actually says because it, it was act, uh, uh, written so long ago and it's been translated into so many different ways. We can't, there's, there's, even what I'm saying has some measure of, of the possibility of inaccuracy in it because, you know, what I'm looking at is the Hebrew that we understand today 
to be the Hebrew language. Uh, there was a there was a different and a more ancient Hebrew language that was written used to write the original text, and uh, we may or may not ever know what those actual words were. So we have to take what we have and use it the best we can to understand it. But I want to put it out there that taking the Bible literally and saying it means there's a place and there's a time and there's this many years and there's that many things going on uh, is dangerous because it is it can be very, very misleading. And I, and I, I think that's really, really important to state here uh, because we, we, what we want to do is try to understand it from a spiritual perspective, not some legalistic perspective. And uh, I think that Jesus and Paul and several of the other writers of the New Testament to- would totally agree with that. So let's then start talking about good and evil. The word used for good in the ancient Hebrew is taub, spelled T-O-W-B. And uh, its several synonyms have to do with agreeableness. Pleasant, desirable, bounty, benefit, becoming, prosperity, and happiness. Not one of those words has anything to do with moral goodness. It's not talking about being a good person it's talking about having wonderful things happen. It's talking about abundance. It's talking about the things that are desirable and pleasant, things that help us become, things that are prosperous, things that make us happy. And it's rooted in the primitive word of the same spelling, which renders it an infinitive to be good, to be pleasant, to be joyful, etc. But it also might seem to many to add the idea of being right or doing morally right in the words to do well. That's kind of questionable too it may not be to do well morally but it could be to do well you know in prosperity and be successful Um, so there's no certainty about that so what we're talking about in the word for goodness is something like agreeableness pleasantness Uh, there's no suffering in this word there's no suffering whatsoever in this word so that's the goodness the word evil is ra which means bad, disagreeable, malignant, displeasing, hurtful, unkind, distress, injury, or wrong. And, you know, what has been translated to mean is moral badness. But we don't see that in the, in the, in the words there. The only word that could be considered to be uh, morally uh, important is the word wrong. It might mean wrong in terms of being a wrong wrong or being making mistakes or doing wrong things, but... It might mean wrong in terms of it feels wrong to, to have this suffering. But these are things that are, that are hard for us. They're displeasing for us. They're hurtful. They're unkind. They're distressing. They're injurious. This, this is where we suffer. So basically what we're talking about is the distinction, a real clear distinction between the pleasantness and bounty of life and the suffering of life. And so the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not a tree about morality. It's a tree that gives us the option to consider pleasantness and bounty as opposed to disagreeableness or unpleasantness or lack or hurt or suffering, suffering of any kind. So this tree of knowledge of good and evil offers us a distinction between the agreeable and the disagreeable, those things we find pleasant, those things we find to be unpleasant, which also potentiates some kind of self-revelation, some kind of coming to be known. Once the fruit of the tree is eaten, something will be shut. Therefore, we may conclude that within the consciousness of ourselves as divine beings, which is Eden, there is a shutting, which is the tree, 
an agreement to suspend that consciousness of ourselves as divine beings so that we can experience good and evil or pleasantness and unpleasantness in a way that allows us to come to know ourselves. So we're going to take this journey through this this duality between good uh, good and evil or uh, pleasantness and unpleasantness or not suffering and suffering, and it's going to help us grow into awareness of who we are. But what's what's, uh, really significant here and in the ongoing stories of the Jewish Tanakh and the Christian Old and New Testaments is that we don't see the tree of life or anything akin to it until the revelation of John. Now, we had the option to eat of the tree of life. We were warned about the tree of knowledge of good and evil and what might happen if we ate of that tree. But there was no such warning given to us about the tree of life. We could have eaten of the tree of life. We did not. And there's a reason for that. We're going to discuss that in a few minutes. The shutting that occurred when Eve chose to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil not only meant that the Garden of Eden or our consciousness of ourselves as divine beings was shut out of conscious experience, but so was the tree of life. Thus, not only were we no longer going to see ourselves as the divine beings we are, but we were not going to be able to live life here on planet Earth as the divine beings we are. But there's a reason for that. And the divine was involved. Elohim was involved in this whole thing. When we first hear about the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the story of creation has already been told once. And though there's been mention of the fruit trees being created, there's no mention of this tree or the tree of life. So Elohim has already created man, male and female, and blessed and sanctified them on the seventh day of rest. All of that happened before the tree of knowledge of good and evil was pointed out. And here's what it says in the text, Genesis 2, 5 and 6. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not yet sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. So what we have here is in the first chapter, the story of the whole entire creation is made. Tree of knowledge of good and evil, male and female are created, all of that, and then the seventh day comes and God rests. All of that's done, but then we start off in the in verse in the second chapter with no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, no plant of the field had yet spouted. God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That sentence is very important. That A mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole ground, that's very important. We're going to see that. The traditional interpretation of the Bible, of Genesis right there, tells us that chapter 2 is written in an ancient Hebrew style as a secondary complementary account of the creation story written by either the same or another author, but attached as a diptych, rather like another panel of the creative story. In this model, a story is told, and then portions of the story are told again so that they're highlighted. This traditional view means that the tree of knowledge of good and evil, as well as the tree of life, were already fully grown along with all the rest of creation prior to the beginning of chapter 2. This is significant because from this perspective, the story starts over again in chapter 2, And the verses above 5 and 6 are simply another shortened, pithier version of the creative story. This notion of the diptych as a primary feature of early early biblical texts is noted for its binary nature. It allows for there to be more than one truth implicit in the text. But, and this is important, it also allows the traditional mindset to cover up what to the mind of one who does not think in diptychs 
might be considered to be a textual error. For example, in the story of the, of the death of King Saul, we see four different versions of how he died. In 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 6, and I'm quoting this text so you can go run and look it up real quick, or you can come back and put it on pause and look it up yourself. 1 Samuel 31, 4 through 6, we learn that Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, but his armor bearer refused, so he fell on his own sword. In 2 Samuel 1, 8 through 10, an Amalekite tells David that Saul asked him to kill him as he was already wounded, and the Amalekite did kill him with his sword. In 2 Samuel 21, 12, we learn that the Philistines killed Saul and hung his body and that of his sons in an open square from which place the bones had been stolen by the men of Jabesh Gilead. Finally, back in 1 Samuel 31, 8 through 10, we learn that the Philistines had not killed Saul. Rather, they found him and his slain sons on Mount Gilboa, where they cut off his head and limbs and sent them around the country to celebrate his death. So we have literally four different versions of Saul's death. If this story is a diptych, then each one of these versions of Saul's death are somehow true, with each explaining the other in a deeper, more significant way. If it's not, then we have to consider other options. One option worthy of consideration is this story has flaws in it, and that's an option often chosen by people who want to discount the Bible entirely. Since most traditionalists, however, this option cannot be considered due to the belief in the inerrancy of the Bible, that idea is unacceptable to them. Another option definitely worthy of consideration is that this story is informing us of the different rumors about Saul's death with all of the inherent political agendas for the various rumors intact. That option, however, includes the possibility that the story is told in some kind of chronological way. In that same way, if the stories of chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Genesis are a diptych, then significant portions of the original story are left out of the second version, for in chapter 2, the only story told is the story of the trees and the story of the final creation of humanity. Further, the last sentence that we talked about above being significant, but a, a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That sentence indicates a continuation of the story of the first chapter rather than another rendition of it. That sentence and the one preceding it indicate that though vegetation had been created, it had not yet grown or sprouted on the earth because there had been no rain. No plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, but rather a mist used to rise to water the whole earth. This means that these verses offer an explanation of the upcoming events rather than a repeat of the story in a less wordy way. Therefore, I must reject the notion of this continuing story as a diptych. So let's just throw that out right now and let's move on. In consideration of that explanation of upcoming events, then we have to conclude that though the trees had been created, yet they had not grown or appeared on the earth. The Jewish Bible actually describes how the trees began to grow on the earth after the creation was complete in verse 9 of chapter 2 of the Bereshit, or the Jewish name for Genesis. <clears throat> and the Lord God caused to sprout from the ground every tree pleasant to see and good to eat, and the tree of life in the midst of garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So though the trees had been created, they had not yet sprouted, and Elohim caused them to sprout in chapter 2. In the same way, though man had been created, yet there is no man to cultivate the ground. So the next step is that man is brought to life. For Elohim formed man of the dust from the ground and then breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's from 2.7. Two, two so 
like the trees and shrubs which had been created but which had not sprouted or appeared on the earth, so humanity had been created but had not yet been brought to life in form. Now humanity is brought to life as dust from the ground. And then the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So what we have here now is humanity was created without form. What that means is that humanity had a subtle body, that we were not in our physical flesh bodies. We were created, but until we were created from dust, we didn't have bodies. And that's a very important distinction that we have to make here. That now we see that while we were yet formless, we could, we could see ourselves as divine beings. And, that sh- and, the, and a shift is about to take place. And this is a very important shift. And we'll talk about it some more there in this section and the next one. Uh, we're not looking at this diptych, so we have to look at these events in a kind of order that can elucidate the meaning. The first Elohim plants divine consciousness, the garden, to the east in the mind of humanity. And then he allows thoughts to grow in that mind. The word for east is very important here. It is kadem, which means east, antiquity, front, Beginning, in front, ancient time, aforetime, earliest time. It is rooted in kadam, which means to meet, come, or be in front, confront, go before, receive, to lead, to anticipate. So, what's happening here is that the, the translators picked out one word and left out all the rest of the possibilities. They picked out the word east and said, oh, that's what it means. Well, east is where the sun rises. It's a new beginning. Uh, uh, and what ha- what. What that means is that there's a possibility that something else came before it. And that's what it talks about when it says antiquity, front, beginning, in front, ancient time, before time, earliest time. So our consciousness of ourselves as divine is now moved to the place in front of or the beginning of our journey. In other words, time is now a feature of human consciousness. There is now a past, a beginning, where divine consciousness was all that was. And that one little word, east, tells us that. The Garden of Eden has been... Uh, has been placed in the east, in front of our consciousness, in front of our journey, in the beginning of our journey. That was the beginning. That was not how it's, it remains. Thus, Elohim brings life into form, but gives our consciousness of ourselves as divine beings a place, an enclosed place in the human psyche. It's put away into the past in memory, so that now we must become conscious of it before we can know it, before we can know who we are. Because that is so, once consciousness of ourselves as Elohim is put into the past, it is possible for humanity to think itself separate from that consciousness. Thus, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the shutting that creates the thought of separation, is created. Now we have developed the capacity to put consciousness of ourselves as divine into the unconscious. The way is paved for Eve, the representative of the feminine or receptive inner realm of humanity, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, incorporating duality trance state which we'll talk a little bit about, into human consciousness. So what we're saying here is, is that it was Elohim who paved the way for us to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, that does not sound like a sin. That sounds like this was a process of unfoldment that's, that is a natural part of the creative process. But according to fundamentalism, Eve sinned, and she made Adam sin. 
And there's terrible punishment that ensues because of that. And we will be talking about that, those so-called punishments um, perhaps in the next segment of this show, not the next segment of this show, but another show coming up soon. Um, so what we have to understand here is that, is that there, there was once upon a time, uh, time when there was no time. And during, in that time when there was no time, there was no past, present, or future. There was only now. And in that nowness, we could see ourselves as divine beings. And we, we could see ourselves as limitless and, and formless, just like the divine was. But once we were created into form and, and, and the, our consciousness was put in the, in the, in to time in the past, our consciousness of ourselves as divine beings was put in the past, then we could see ourselves as separate from the divine. And that's the major shift that takes place, our belief in ourselves as separate from the divine. And we're going to talk some more about this right after this break. Stay tuned for more. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Take a closer look at yourself in the present. Your body has its own GPS system designed to help you follow your intuition, align your thoughts, and set your own course. Host Dee Lee is here to be your external guide to this discovery. Take a break, a mindful space to pause, and help bring forth the balance that your life deserves. Listen live for Mindful Space to Pause every Friday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listen for Mindful Matters, Love, Sex, Spirit, hosted by Dr. Dory Lynn. Dr. Dory is coming back, sexy, savvy, and with sage advice from nearly eight decades of life experience. It's not retirement, it's refirement. It's fun, it's deep. Listening just makes you feel good. If you're looking for straight talk without all the bull in the world, be sure to tune in to Dr. Dory and Mindful Matters, Love, Sex, Spirit. Live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Make an appointment listening right now. Tune in to Lead Up for Women. Speak up to Lead Up as we celebrate the influence of women in business and beyond. Your host, Colleen Biggs, speaks with guests who have stories to share, have faced adversity, and have become success stories in business, in their communities, and in personal accomplishments. Join the strong and the brilliant ones and understand that the world is ready for you to be at your best. Lead Up for Women is heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Empowerment. Change your world. Change your life. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now toll-free 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at AndreaMatthews.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. 
And we're back talking today about the mistake in Christianity and the and the errors and mistranslations that occurred in our understanding of the of the sacred text, which we call the Bible, the Christian Bible. Um, we're looking at the earliest traditions that have been passed down to us and the concept of original sin. And what we're discovering is that perhaps there is no such thing as original sin because a the the Tree of Knowledge of Good and Evil is not about moral good and evil, but rather about pleasantness and unpleasantness, or about agreeableness and un- disagreeableness, or about uh, not suffering and bounty and plenty and safety, as opposed to suffering. So we had this uh, a time in the past when it was possible for us to understand ourselves as divine beings, where we lived in plenty and bounty and delight and understanding of ourselves as as totally one with the divine. And then there was this disruption, and the disruption was caused when Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So let's talk a little bit about Eve. Uh, but first, before we do that, I want to be re- I want to remind you that one of the things that Jesus said that was the most profound that I'd, I've never heard preached about in a Christian church, and I used to attend Christian churches all the time, um, uh, is, is this statement that he made in John 10, 34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? That's taken from the Psalms uh, uh, 82, 6, where it literally says, I said you are God's. And uh, so what, what he's basically doing there is reminding us about who we are. We've, been, we've gotten so far away from that. And there's a lot of laws and, uh, and you know, standards that the Jewish church had back then, Jewish church, Jewish uh, temple had back then when Jesus was uh, around that, that he was trying to say, you don't need these laws. What you need to do is go within and find out who you are is basically what he kept referring them to. And, uh, and there's more about that in, in future, te- uh, future radio shows. We'll talk more about that. But, um, when we talk about the duality trance state, what we're talking about is a state where we believe we're separate from the divine. And we have to understand who Adam and Eve are to go any further with that. Uh, Adam and Eve are not literal people. I've heard people say, well, I can't believe that, that the creation story is valid because I can't believe two white people created all these races. And I can't believe that two people uh, created the whole thing because there were other people that that Cain and Abel married. How did they find those people? And you know, there's there's uh, ideas about how what that means. And so that's one example of why we need to not take it so literally. Adam and Eve were not literal people. They are they are symbols of the beginning of humanity, and they are symbols of the feminine and the masculine. And the feminine and the masculine are not male and female. They are archetypes for psychological and spiritual understandings of who we are. So Eve represents, is, uh, is symbolic of, of the feminine. And the feminine is that, that psychological construct or that spiritual construct that allows us to receive. We receive from the inner person. And that inner person has wisdom and, and it's like a seed planted in the ground and it grows up into this tree. And once it gets above ground, and starts becoming this tree. That's when it becomes masculine. So, the, so it's uh, the we go internal to find our resources in there, and then we take those resources and manifest them in the external world. That's how the feminine and the masculine work together 
to accomplish their goal. And we need both. We need both an equal portion, and they are both a part of every person's psychology and spirituality. And so, so Eve represents the feminine in humanity, earliest humanity, and Adam represents the masculine in earliest humanity. They do not represent just two figures who sinned and started this whole mess. Um, so, uh, so Eve eats of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what that means, the eating, eating of this tree means that she incorporated into the body-mind. She incorporated into the body-mind this new uh, understanding of life. Now, all of a sudden, she could suffer. Now, all of a sudden, things could be disagreeable, whereas they'd only been agreeable before that. Now, all of a sudden, she could see life from the perspective of suffering. She could see that things could be unhappy for her and for other people. She, she, could, she could see that, and it's not really a choice. It's an it's a understanding of duality. Now, I'm separate from the divine, so now I see life from a whole different perspective. Now, uh, when we look at what happened to her as a result of that, we understand that uh, she ate of the fruit. And what is fruit? The fruit. The Hebrew word is pyri, which means fruit, produce, offspring, offspring, children, progeny, and fruit of actions. It's rooted in para, which means to bear fruit, to be fruitful, branch off, to cause to bear fruit, to make fruitful, and to show fruitfulness. The fruit of knowledge of good and evil is the life we produce by thinking ourselves separate from the divine. Not only is it the fruit, however, but it's also the ability to produce such fruit. Once fully enveloped in the duality trance state, which we believe we're separate from the divine, we have the ability to produce more duality. So that's what this tree gives us. This thought, this tree that is a thought, it gives us that. This changes the meaning of the phrase, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, from a tree that produced good and evil to, a tree, to include a tree that is produced by good and evil, produced by suffering and agreeableness. The thought of suffering and agreeableness and the thought that is produced by suffering and agreeableness are both represented here. If good represents our joy and evil represents our suffering, then the thought that we may suffer produces suffering, and the suffering produces the thought that we may suffer, and likewise with joy. These thoughts amount to the journey of duality. This journey is the learning to know, the learning by experience, the becoming known, the self-revelation that is described in the word yada which is the root word of the word knowledge in the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In order to take that journey, Eve and later Adam had to come to see differently. Their seeing, their perception of life had changed. That's why we use the term duality trance state, because in this new way of seeing, this new vision, they no longer saw who they were as divine beings. When they ate the fruit, they entered a trance, in which they, they thereafter saw everything inside and outside of themselves as separate from the divine where once they had seen themselves as one with the divine. The evidentiary demarcation line was the time in which they saw themselves as subtle body rather than, rather than divine formlessness. They knew themselves as beings without a body who must now have a body if they were to begin the journey in which they could see themselves as separate from the formlessness they also were. They had become entranced with a new central organizing force. So, you know, what, what we're saying here is that this entrancement is, uh, it, is the way we live. We begin to live from duality instead of living from oneness with the divine. 
And that is the shift in consciousness that took place in the Garden of Eden. And that's why they had to leave the Garden of Eden, because you can't stay in the Garden of Eden where the consciousness is of the divine when you are conscious only of yourself as separate from the divine. So more on the woman, uh, the the feminine creative impulse, which receives its creativity from within, will now have to go through the pain as part of the creative endeavor. To the woman, here's what happened as a result of her choice to eat of the tree of knowledge. The woman, he said, he being Elohim, we, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The literal interpretation of this passage means that women will have labor pains when they give birth. But let's look at the word childbirth. It's heron, which means physical conception, pregnancy, and conception. But it's rooted in hurrah, which also means to conceive, become pregnant, to bear, to be with child. And it also carries, however, the more masculine progenitor and also means both to conceive and to be conceived or to contrive or devise. So it's obvious in that we're talking about more than just physical labor pains of childbirth. Uh, we're also talking about the pain of being a progenitor, the originator of anything. The pain of contriving, devising, bearing, or conceiving of anything. So it's not just about pain in childbirth. It's about pain in creating anything. Further, according to traditionalists, the second part of that sentence should also be interpreted literally. And it means that she has to subject her will to the, to the will of her husband. And, but let's look, at the, let's look at the actual root language. The word desire is tushwa, desire, longing, craving, as of a woman, a man, or a man, a woman, or a beast to devour. The word derives from the primitive word shuk, which means to be abundant, to give abundance, to overflow. Further, the word commonly translated as husband is aish, which means man, male, human being, person, servant, husband, mankind, champion, great man, whoever, whosoever, or each. The term husband is not, is not the entire meaning of this word. It's, it's the one word picked out and left out all the rest of them. There definitely is a craving, perhaps an abundant craving, or a craving for abundance, but that what is being craved is not a husband, but the externality of the masculine archetype. Clearly, we can see that the masculine archetype is a strong potential meaning for this word. He's a man, a male, a human being, a servant, and the collective mankind. He's a champion, a great man. From a metaphorical perspective, then this poetry is telling us about craving for the externalities represented by the masculine archetype. So here's what happened. We, we, we can change that verse to a much deeper meaning, which might sound something like this. The internal shall turn itself outward shall overflow its internal boundaries, deeply desire and live only for and in the external world and be ruled by it. And that is what has happened. So traditionalists are telling us something that's really false. They're, not, they're telling us to ignore the masculine archetype here and think only in literal terms of a husband when there's much more to that word than just husband. And so... The idea that the literal woman should be ruled by a literal man, specifically her husband, turns out to be completely false. Duality has turned us inside out so that we crave only the external to fulfill us when our truest fulfillment lies within us. Our abundance, our joy, our peace, our truth is found within, and then and only then should it be carried into the external world by the masculine energy. We see here, however, that the masculine energy, the external energy, now warped by the duality trans state, has overwhelmed the internal so that we hardly even see it anymore. 
That describes the split off between the masculine and the feminine that Carl Jung spent so much time talking about in his treatises on our psychology, or as I would say, our spirituality and our psychology. Um, and that's a big part of why we, we feel split off from the divine, because we're not going within, where the, where that which describes the feminine. That Within is the feminine. Without is the masculine. So we need both. We need to be able to operate in the, ma- in the external world, but we need to come from the internal world. That's what Jesus meant when he said that we will not we will live in the world, but not of the world. We will live of ourselves, but we will live in the world. So, uh, you know, what we've discovered today is that uh, the, the traditional mindset, the fundamentalist mindset about original sin turns out when we look at the text and the root language and the metaphysical meanings to be totally false. There is no such thing as original sin. There's a, there, there is such a thing as a duality state in which we think we're separate from the divine, even though we're not. We're not really separate from the divine. We just think we are because of the duality trance state. And that's what happened in the Garden of Eden, not original sin. Okay, that's our show for today. We're going to be back again next week with more. And, you, and remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll talk again next week.